Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. Uh, I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Pawatic. Today, we've got another repeat guest. I think we're going to have a slew of these repeat guests as we handle the new realities of what this pandemic has caused and you know the isolation that we're experiencing and just the impacts that COVID is having on the real estate community at large. Our guest today is a gentleman everybody's familiar with, Derek Lobo, who's the CEO of SVN Rock Advisors and of course, the broker of record there. You know, Derek, I'll let you explain what SVN Rock Advisors is. And then let's get right into the topic today, which is really guidance to our landlords and how they're going to handle and manage rent collection in this sort of unprecedented time. Welcome aboard, Derek. Yeah. Hey guys, it's good to be here today. And I think it's been a few years since we've been together. So our business basically has a sole focus and that's on in the apartment sector. So we do, you know, conventional apartment transactions. We specialize in new apartment construction and student housing. And then we do consulting with developers sort of from beginning to end when they're building apartment buildings. So, you know, the we've all come to, I think what we're calling right now, the big pause, right? Like people are concerned what to do. And when you don't know exactly what to do, you sort of put a pause on things, right? And, you know, you get your personal life in order and things like that. But we have in the industry a unique challenge here where, you know, the Ontario government and many provincial governments have said, look, you know, if tenants don't pay their rent, they won't get evicted, right? And then that might be a reasonable thing to do. But that's really what I'd like to talk about with you today is what strategies can landlords take immediately for April 1? Then if it is a problem, how do they minimize and contain and risk assess that damage, right? And then how do they get ready if this goes on for another month or another month after that? How does that sound for the agenda? Perfect. Okay. We'll, let you, we'll, just, we're just like, we'll just pull the string and let you go, Derek. You run with it. <laughs> Great. Okay. All right. Okay. So, you know, I don't know if any of you have been visiting the LCBO recently, but you know, I've been a couple of times. And interestingly enough, in the LCBO I go into, the vodka section is the very first section you see. And I walked in and there was like, the shelf was completely empty. There was like one or two bottles of, you know, vodka on it, yet everything else in the store was fully stocked. And I mean, fully stocked. And so I kind of said to the checkout lady, you know, listen, I said, she says, there's no vodka. And she goes, well, everyone's buying it thinking it's hand sanitizer, right? So the people at Tito Vodka who produce, I'm sure, a very fine vodka put out a press release because they were, I think they were a little insulted saying, please don't use our vodka for sanitizer. I mean, everybody knows you should use scotch, right? If you really want to be clean. So, you know, there are all kinds of challenges out there, but we'll get through it. I would say that probably we've been giving advice to our clients both on the phone one-on-one, but we've also been doing a, a number of webinars. And I would say that the very first thing you need to think about in this situation that we're going through is your front line and your team, right? And so your front line, and I'm speaking to apartment owners, right? Your front line is your building manager, superintendent, and your cleaner. And they are on the front line. All of us are what held up in our extra bedroom right now, right? Nobody's eating rice and beans yet, right? So life isn't that hard for us other than the fact that we're all probably working, you know, 10, 12 hour days. But I would say that your frontline staff are really shut down your amenity space. You've got them, you know, cleaning the lobby three or four times. You know, all the kids are home from school, the building's full. And so I would think the one of a really nice thing you could do is to immediately arrange for someone to just go down there with either an envelope of cash or a check and just say, here, we appreciate the work that you're doing, you know, and maybe I'll order in a switch. You know, $500 is sort of just a token of appreciation to more than that. Fair enough? 
Yeah. Um, but I think that so often it's not necessarily the amount of money. It's just it's the recognition that we know you're in a hard spot and we appreciate what you're doing. Like so much of life is that, right? Especially in these difficult times. I think when you go to the grocery store, you're just stocking on what you need. You're not really looking for the best deal, right? So I think that would be important. The second thing is I think in a, I'm coming to realize this is think about your team. You know, I'm at home with my wife, my child, my, you know, my married daughter's home with her children. I'm actually having a little bit of fun there. It's hectic. It's crazy. But there's a lot of people who are, you know, alone or in tougher situations than maybe we are, you know, tougher work situations, tougher financial situations, tougher family situations, things like that. So keep in touch with your team and maybe just spend a little bit of extra time talking to your staff and things like that. You know, I'm, I was always a, a very telephone guy, you know, that's because that's all, that's all I know. But I realized, you know, just talking to my staff and looking at them was arranging, you know, was, was just having, you know, better conversations. Right. So I think the front line and the team are important. And if this thing gets longer, it's going to be, you know, more and more important. Fair enough. But let's get down to apartment owners and hopefully giving them some advice that they can immediately use. The first thing I'd say is that, you know, like there's two doors to consider. There's your front door and there's your back door. And the front door is not as important as the back door. So the front door is, you know, nobody has tremendously high vacancy rates, right? Unless you're like, you know, a building under construction or or you're just coming out to market. That's a special challenge for sure. But I would say that, you know, your front door is going to be your front door. There's not much you can do to change it. But you should definitely go to virtual leasing. Everybody says that. But what does virtual leasing mean? Here's what it means. It means you rent to everybody like they're from out of town. Okay. And right now with the way leasing is going and the way the internet's going and so on. We all lease to people out of town that we've never met before. Well, now everybody's like that. So your phone conversation is longer. The collateral material you send them is more detailed. You're walking through a floor plan with them online and you can do a virtual tour with your phone in the apartment. We do that a lot in student housing. We do that a lot in new construction, you know, where people are moving from out of town and things like that. So that's your front door. The second thing I'd say about the front door is this is probably not a time to set market maker rents. Look, the market's been pretty strong for the last, you know, three, four years, unprecedentedly strong. And so landlords have been, you know, getting and not deserving, you know, because they're renovating their units and so on, you know, pretty good size rent increases. Well, I would think you need to be satisfied with, you know, last month's rent or the months before rent as opposed to breaking new ground. Let's just keep this full. Fair enough with the limited traffic that we've got. Now, a couple of things that we're hearing from people as we talk to them is, number one, a lot of people who give them notices have canceled because they just can't move. That's actually sometimes a challenge because people have re-rented that apartment on the assumption of that notice. And now the guy says he doesn't want to move. So I've got one client in a position where had so many people rescind and people still want to move in that he's got a challenge, right? So that's sort of the comments, guys, I have for the front door. You know, you do the best you can. This is not the time to be setting market maker rents. Fair enough? Do you anticipate incentives to keep the front door a little more full? You know, if you keep your back door full, I don't think we're at the stage of necessarily talking about incentives. But if we do have to give incentives, I look, I've been for 35 years in leasing apartments, right? I don't like giving away incentives or one month's free rent. I'd way rather put in a ceiling fan for you or hardwood floors or some customization in the apartments worth one month's rent if that's what I've got to give away. But then that stays behind when the resident leaves and now I've got a premium in my apartment. Fair enough? Yeah. Right. But that being said, do what you've got to do to keep your building full. Okay. So that brings us now, guys, to the back door, right? So if your back door gets open, it's very hard to fill it, right? So you want to make sure you stay on top of your residence. Let me give you this analogy. So two families get in their car and they're driving from Toronto to New York City and they've got children. Okay. Guys like you guys. So you're following each other, right? So Aaron and Adam are driving to New York City from Toronto, right? And one of your kids has to go to the bathroom in an unscheduled break, right? So you pull off the highway for 15 minutes, you get back on the highway 
Adam, you've gone further ahead. Aaron, stop for 15 minutes, right? It's going to take him three hours to catch up to you driving above the speed limit for that 15 minute break. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's what I mean about vacancies. If you get behind on your vacancies, it's going to take you months to catch up. So the answer is never, never get behind. Fair enough. So we've got, you know, April 1 coming up. Some people are going to run into legitimate financial problems with COVID, right? You can't evict them anyways, but I think there's an opportunity for landlords and for apartment owners to distinguish themselves with customer service and understanding. Now, there will be some people who are going to try and game you. Let's hope that's the minority and we'll deal with those separately, right? So your objective here is to get and keep your building full and minimize the turnover in what's going to be, you know, a challenging time for the next, you know, one, two or three months. Derek, sorry to cut you off. I just have a question. Maybe you're getting here. Just stop me if you're planning on covering this. But for those tenants that are coming across challenges, let's say they've got temporary unemployment or are just are having issues, you know, with salary. What level of due diligence do you think landlords are going to or should be going to sure. validate the truth? Because, you know, there are going to be, like you said, sort of the freeloaders. Those guys are going, going to game the system. There, there are yeah, going to be people so who are going to game the system, right? You, and what, some what of them may of get away with it. What kind of information should you be collecting to validate? Okay, this oh, person, like, is it termination sure. letters? Like, what should you be getting? Yeah, yeah. Sure. No, 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 no. Okay, okay, right. So first, before we talk about what you do, let's talk about who's going to do it. Okay, because you've got a building manager, building superintendent living in the building, right? It's not his skill set to do negotiations. Fair enough. So if you're a small apartment owner, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 suites, you should probably be doing this yourself or someone close to you should be doing this. Okay. And this is going to mean to have, you know, a discussion, you know, with the residents, right? If you're a larger firm, I think you need to be taking staff that is at home and giving them uh, general guidelines to have the discussion. Fair enough. So if someone is affected by COVID and they're affected in the terms of, you know, interruption in their income, whether that be, you know, a full interruption, whether they've been gone or whether, you know, the tips are down or there aren't as many Uber rides or whatever the case is. Right. I would say that, you know, I wouldn't want to be I know I can't evict them. They know they can't be evicted. Right. And they're going to break into many categories. And I'll try and describe, you know, a few of them here, you know, in a moment. But if someone falls behind, if someone can't pay their rent, then the first thing I would work out is a payment program with them. Fair enough. And so if someone owes me $1,500 in rent and I don't want the guy paying zero, fair enough. So I'd want to get something from him. Okay. So on our website, we've got a series of videos, right? uh, To watch. And then when you watch those videos, there's also a download there where you can get a letter to send to the resident before April 1st. That's just a, Hey, how are you? We know there's challenges and so on. And then there's a letter and you're inviting them to call you. And then the second letter is after April 1st, if they don't pay. Right. And it'll tell you what to do. And then there's a third document that basically will memorialize your discussion in terms of what you've agreed to. So that's the process, you know, that I go through and I'll describe that in a little more detail. But the first thing you got to decide is who's going to handle the call. So there are going to be people with legitimate situations who need a rent deferral and you got to give it to them anyways because you can't evict them. Right. I would say that could be done by, you know, mid-level staff. Right. But then you're also going to have people in, in the building that have been maybe not great residents. So they've been chronically late paying rents and now they want to game this thing. Right. A little bit. And I hope that's the minority of people. I suspect it will be. But that person then needs to get elevated to someone with a little more decision making power and a little bit more flexibility. So you have the people who are going to pay. You're going to have the legitimate cases and then you're going to have the special cases. Fair enough. And so you've got to communicate with the people before, then you've got to communicate with them afterwards, right? And if the people can't pay, then the first thing I try and do is put them on a payment plan and understand the legitimacy of their situation. Now, look, you guys are lenders, 
right? If I had a mortgage with you and I came to you and I said, hey guys, I need to change something. Well, the first thing you'd say to me is, okay, well, show me your numbers. Tell me how long you're going to need this for. Tell me how long your liquidity is going to last, right? Given what you've got right now. And the more transparent I am with you, probably the better you're going to treat me. The worst thing would be for me never to call you. And, you know, all of a sudden you go to get the money and it's not there and I don't return your call for two weeks. Fair enough. So I think getting ahead of this and letting tenants know that you're there to communicate with them, you're there to work with them is the way to go. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So related to that, Derek, what, how much momentum do you think the no rent April 1 movement we keep hearing in the newspaper? How much actual momentum do you think that? Yeah, has? yeah, that yeah. So, right. I think that's absolutely the right question to ask. I think this is about, you know, risk mitigation and just the stratifying your risk, right? So if I owned an apartment building today or I were, you know, a partner in one or a lender in one or something like that, what I'd want to know is what's my exposure, Okay. And, you know, we've created a chart, which I'll send to you guys, and you can maybe attach it, you know, somewhere or put it on your webpage, but we've shown the risk profile. Okay. So I would say that the lowest risk building would be a building that's highly tenanted with seniors who are on a prepayment plan, right? So you got people who are living in apartments. They're probably going to have low, low turnover anyways. They are people who've sold their homes, retired, fairly well off on fixed incomes and stable incomes, and they already have pre-authorized plan to, you know, to pay the landlord. Well, to not pay the rent, first of all, I'd have to be probably a pretty bad guy because I've had no interruption in, in my income. And then I have to call my bank and tell them don't pay. You see my point? So I would expect on those buildings a relatively high rate of people paying. I don't know what that percentage is, but it's 95%. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go from low risk to kind of higher risk. Then I go to probably my my solid B building. Fair enough. I've got, you know, a, a mid-level building with, you know, working, you know, working people in there, probably pretty well employed because my rents aren't at the lower end of things. Then I would probably go to the, you know, the, so let's say we call the first building A, the second group B. Then the C group, you've got, you know, working class people, but they're not as affluent. They're probably living a little bit closer to the bone. They're going to be, they don't have as much money in the bank, right? And things like that. And, you know, they're, they're living to some extent, maybe from paycheck to paycheck. Those people might have serious problems. And look, there could be people in all those groups, you know, who are going to game this thing. Then keep going up the curve of risk. I would think that a newer building with top of market rents with a high number of students and young people in them would probably be more at risk, right? Because so the students, a lot of them have gone home, right? They've signed May to May leases and September, December leases, September, December. I don't want to talk about student housing because there isn't that much, you know, in the country, but there would be more risk there because, you know, the students have just left, right? Well, a lot of that comes um, with, Derek, a lot of that comes with parental guarantees though, does it not? Yeah, it does. But, you know, but but the point is, is you're going to have to chase them, right? And right now it's about cash flow too, right? So right. yeah, let me finish. Then let's come back to what sure. the real risk is. Have you lost the money or have you just deferred the payment, right? Okay. So I'm continuing to go on. You kind of visualize a risk kind of graph, you know what I mean? With the risk going higher. So after students, then I go to a pure student housing scenario where, you know, it's off campus and it's all students and you're doing May to May leases. So if you're not full, you're probably not getting a lease signed in May to the following May, right? So you could go through a summer of, you know, three, four months of empty apartments. Make sense? Now, if you're a building that's mainly September to September, then you got a little bit more reprieve because if we're out of this thing in a few months, then, you know, everyone's going to return back to school and you'll get your September to September done. And then the last one, and I would say probably the one that's the most precarious, you say, where is the danger? And there's not enough time to talk about this today. But if there is anyone in this position, we're happy to talk to them one on one. If you are a brand new building and you are about to receive your certificate of occupancy in the next one two, three months, or you've just started your lease up, then I think there's a bit of exposure there for you because, you know, everyone is taking a bit of a wait and see approach. The person living in the brand new luxury building is usually paying, is almost always paying 
top of market rents. That is a someone I would call a discretionary renter or renter by choice. They may choose not to make a decision right now and just stay where they are. Look, eventually everything is going to get full where we're in probably the safest business there is, right? And what we're providing is, you know, basic housing. So I think we're going to be fine. So that's kind of the risk profile. Now, within that, and I think I'm getting to the question you just asked, is what's the stratification within a building, right? So, you know, you guys like in Ontario, hear these comments, but they, and they'll apply to here, where we've had rent controls for a long time. We've got people living in our building who are paying significantly less than the market rent. You guys follow what I'm saying? Yeah, most of them for five years and they've been calling the guy. Right, 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 right. Or they've been living in the building like, you know, 10, 15 years. So their rents are way below the market. So let's say you got a tough guy in there. He says, I'm not going to pay my rent. Fair enough. Well, he's sitting on essentially an annuity because when he, because if he moves out, he knows that that unit can be rented at a higher price. So I think that guy, even if he doesn't pay you, will eventually pay you because he wants to stay in his apartment. Okay. So I would think of that more as a rent deferral. Does that make sense? Yep. You'll get it. You'll get the money. People actually view it that way. Do you think that people have that kind of logic that they'll understand this $300 yeah. a month gap between their current living arrangement yes. and the yes. market? Yes. And the bigger that gap is, the more they're going to know. And when they go out there and look, they'll realize what they're sitting on. Yeah. 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 So I, what I'm saying is if those people, so if the guy has a COVID event, well, just, you know, you, you got to do what you got to do, negotiate something with him, right? And then he'll pay you back and he'll make it up over the coming months or over the coming year. But if he's a guy who hasn't had a COVID event, just says, I'm not paying you, well, do everything you can. I would think on that guy, I would issue an N4, which is an eviction notice, but I'd also send along a friendly letter. Fair enough? Well, how do you issue and, and an N4? And that's after, but that's after your discussion with him. Now, you can't enforce the N4, okay, because the courts are closed. But what I am doing is I'm preserving my right to do that, okay? And I'm letting them know that I'm taking this seriously, but I can't evict you because I can't evict you. And you're doing all of this with a significantly more love and care than you would do otherwise if a guy didn't pay his rent, given the times that we're in, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? So, yeah, so, so what I'm saying is you, you have to be sympathetic to the circumstances. I mean, whether the guy's um, just a freeloader or not, you have to be sympathetic. No, no, 100%. Okay. And that's why you're talking to people. Fair enough. You're not just sending out notices arbitrarily. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so let's say within, and, and I'm not at all here, and I hope I haven't come across this way. I'm not at all saying this is a, a hard line case here. I'm saying this is different people are going to be in different circumstances. There's no blanket policy for a building. Like, or even like, for tenant by tenant. Yeah, that, that's my point. This is individual and it's going to be loan by loan, right? When a lender reviews it or whether a tenant and things like that, but it just makes sense. Now, then you've got, so in the same building, you could have people paying significantly below market. You could also have in that same building people who moved in, let's say, I don't know, two, three years ago. Okay, Their rent is still going to be a little bit below the market because, you know, they moved in two or three years ago, then they got the statutory increases, but rents are still moved up. They're in a middle position. Then you've got people who just moved in, right? Let's say they moved in the last year. Well, their rents are at market, okay? So now, if the long-term tenant, let's just say, was paying you $1,000 and he's been in there for 10 years, the guy who just moved in is paying you $1,500, right? Now, he doesn't pay his rent for one month. Okay. All right. Well, we're kind of stuck with that, right? Then he doesn't pay his rent for two months. Now, 3000 All of a sudden, after three months, you're at $4,500, right? Now, that guy becomes more of a flight risk, okay? Because he's not sitting on an annuity, right? He's paying market rent. So, I'd want to be working with that tenant more because I think if he gives me some money, I have more commitment for him to stay where he is. But if that amount starts getting too large, then that person becomes a flight risk. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's not just one building. It's not building by building. I think how people pay is going to depend one on geography. So, for example, I think if there's a um, a building out in uh, let's let's pick a city we all know, Peterborough, right? And you know you've got mainly you know housing is relatively cheap there and might apply to you know other cities as well. But the people who are living there are are people who've sold their homes. They've you know they they've got some money in the bank and they're probably going to pay their. My guess is most of them are going to pay their rent, right? Now let's say you got a building in downtown Toronto and it's got a very different resident profile and they've been, you know, at loggerheads with their landlord, right? You could have a very different, you know, result from that same building. But even within that building, certain people are going to pay and certain people aren't. So it's really going to be very, very individual on a tenant by tenant basis. We've been doing these webinars, right? And so we've got one going on on April 3rd where we're going to get data from dozens of landlords across Canada and we'll be able to at least on a preliminary basis on April 3rd, be able to come up with what people have found. And then you can sort of compare yourself to what's going on in the industry in general to know whether you are ahead or behind, you know, rental payment. Then on the 3rd, we're going to be doing a blind survey using, you know, one of these survey tools, SurveyMonkey. We're going to ask landlords to come on, and this is for the benefit of the industry, to, in a sanitized way and in a confidential way, to come on, give us the, the size of your building, give us your rent level, and give us the geography. Maybe it's the first three digits of the postal code of the city, and tell us what your rents are and what percent of people paid in each of those categories. And that way, we'll be able to start determining, you know, based on location, based on price, and maybe based a little bit on demographic, what the percent rent paid will be. Right now, I think it's really, it's anybody's guess as to where it would be, and I don't think I'd want to uh, actually hazard a guess. Where are you going to share that information? Yeah, where are you going to share that information? No, no. So we're going to share. So whoever participates in the survey will get detailed information back, still maintaining confidentiality, and then we'll share it on a higher level basis to the entire industry. Fair enough. Look, this is a time where our job as suppliers to the industry, you know, as, as brokers and consultants and you guys as lenders, our job right now is to help everybody, help everybody make good decisions. And then, you know, I'll talk about this at the end, really our philosophy of how we're taking this time period to, uh, you know, to reevaluate, you know, a bunch of things in our business. But yeah, we'll absolutely share that. So on April 3rd, we'll have a webinar. And why don't you, one of you guys... I'm glad, I'm glad you yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the webinars. I watched uh, a couple of you done and they are, there is a much deeper dive than we're going to do here today on these topics. So if this information resonates, you know, with the listeners, definitely tune into the webinars. And can they view the webinars that you were doing this previous Yeah, week? yeah, yeah. All the webinars are on our webpage and it's just, S-V-N, Stanley Victor Norman Rock, dot C-A. And so we've done uh, three webinars already, and they'll be on there. And then we've got one for the for April 3rd and April 9th. And then we're lining up a couple more. What we're trying to do, guys, is really do a deep drill on narrow subjects as opposed to the state of the market. Fair enough. There's a lot of good stuff on there on the state of the market and, you know, what's happening in general in the capital markets and, you know, how often to wash your hands and things like that. All good stuff, right? But our goal is to take the topics that are operational, right? And to give, you know, specific advice. So a lot of people are saying, well, what kind of letter should I write or what kind of agreement should I have to memorialize this discussion I've had with my tenant? Well, we had a lawyer, a guy by the name of Joe Hoffer, great guy, understands this business as well as anybody on the, you know, landlord and tenant laws. You know, so Joe drafted up some documents for us and and, and freely gave them to us and said, share them among the industry. So there's some good things happening in terms of people cooperating, landlords who are buying buildings, who, who are competitors, kind of just saying, look, how do we take a pause? But They'll keep things going, you know, and things like that. So we'll put the links on the uh, the show notes as well with all this as well for people. To yeah, just you just put our webpage out. That's very nice of you to do. And then when you go to our webpage, you'll be able to download the videos. But I'll also put a link because I don't think we have it. I'll put a link on the front page so that you can just download those forms. 
Fair enough. Because I think those forms will be very helpful to people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely Right. We're also working on some other forms that you can use as part of your negotiation and updating your last month's rent and things like that, which again, we'll make available. Okay, perfect. It's a good service to the industry. Well, that's sort of really the the thing to do right now, right? Is, is that, you know, landlords have to help their residents and, you know, us guys who serve the industry have to help. So for example, let's say you're an apartment owner, right? You've got staff at the front line that are, that are going to be overwhelmed. I think you need contingency plans in place. If your super gets sick, who steps in for them, right? And I mean, that's a pretty key position. So for example, I'd be talking to all my suppliers, my laundry guys, my HVAC guys. Say, look, every time you go to the building, please walk around, just report back to me how things are going. Right. And I think everybody's going to want to everyone's going to go that kind of extra mile to do that. So in terms of the rent to kind of summarize, like April 1 is an event where that nobody has any idea that how it's going to go. Once April 1 occurs, I think people will be transparent. Say, this is what we faced. These are the best practices. This is what we found. This is what surprised us. This is what didn't surprise us. This is what our tenants, you know, our residents actually said to us. And I think if we share that information as an industry, I think that would be good. Okay. The other topic we want to talk to you about was cap rates and deal flow. I got to say that in you know the interactions that I'm having with people over the last couple of weeks, cap rates has come up more than anything else. Yeah, outside of obviously yes. direct lending questions, we're just yes. discussing the market yeah. as a whole. Uh, yeah. Cap rates is yeah. a question right now. Yeah. So I'd love yeah. to hear yeah. your take on, on what that would be. Is it blindfolded throwing a dart at a dartboard or where? where no, 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 no. I, I think look, we've all been in this business for a long time, right? We've got some recessions, you know, under our belt. And you know, personally, I mean, I've been through like I don't know three probably global recessions. I probably I think I say number seventeen, but somewhere around there of recessions because we've been in the leasing business. So I've moved to, I've gone to Alberta several times, went to Yellowknife when the diamond mine closed, went out to Gander when they're probably in Newfoundland, but in Texas, you know what I mean? Florida, Windsor. So I've lived probably more recessions than most people because our business just took us to places like that, right? And so we've watched, you know, cap rates over the years. So I think that if you go back to 208, you know, 209, and you look at, you know, what happened to cap rates, well, you know, Cap rates did go up, not a whole lot, but they went up. Everyone expected in 2829, hey, you know, I'm finally, we're going to get a, a chance to buy some apartments. We're waiting for the deals. There were hardly any deals, man. I was a broker then and we visited everyone. I saw one building in Windsor, 50 units that actually came up, you know, through the system, you know, with, uh, you know, a guy default on the mortgage and so on. So I think what happens is my guess, and it's, and it's only that, is that while cap rates might go up a tad, you know, interest rates have gone down. So the spread between, you know, cap rates and interest rates will probably be as high as it's been, would be my guess, right? And I'm kind of thinking about cap rates as almost being a, um, like the stock market, they're an indicator of the future. So when you're confident in the future, you know, the stock market goes up. When you're not, the stock market goes down. So I suspect that what made apartments and still make them such an extraordinary investment, that's why cap rates are the lowest of really all real estate, is because of the predictability of the future. Right. So the predictability future has gotten put in question, not as much from the tenant's ability to pay, but I think more from this this eviction thing that they've started. Right. I mean, everyone's been through, you know, recessions and people haven't paid. And I don't know how bad this is going to be, but I think that's something that you learn to deal with. It's this mass thing of just saying, well, you know, you can't get evicted. So if a lot of people don't pay their rents, that's the uncertainty. But nobody is going to you know, immediately or in the short term, unless there's extraordinary circumstance where they got trouble somewhere else. Look, we've got a bunch of deals on the go. A few guys have put down the pen, but a few guys have also come back and said, look, we still like this deal. We still think we're we're still quite liquid, but, you know, we want to get more time for due diligence. And now all of a sudden the financing clauses are, first, they weren't there because they were just, they buy them in cash and refinance them, but now there's financing clauses are showing up. So I think it's very reasonable for a seller to say, I want to take a pause. 
And it's very reasonable for a buyer to say, I want to take a pause. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it would also be a problem. I imagine if you know you put uh, pen to paper and got a deal signed up and then you go to transact six, seven weeks later and the, ba- the yeah. building's got 10% more vacancy, 15% more vacancy than it did when you signed it up. You know, those, uh, those kinds uh, uh, of things. 100%. And that's why it's rational for everyone to take a look and see approach. So a seller says, wait a minute, I don't want to go out there right now because I'm going to look like I'm desperate, right? And a buyer is going to say, I don't know what I'm going to inherit. So it makes sense for both sides to do deals. Now, if the guy wants to push it out so far that really he's getting a free option, that might be a little bit different. Do you see my point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Create a contract now, but it put a 120 day conditional period on it. Like that kind of structure. Yeah. Or he puts a six month, put six months on it. And then all of a sudden he's got a free option. And meanwhile, things come back. Look, I was talking to a Bay Street analyst and this was last week. So that's like, you know, a long time ago now, right? With how fast things move. But he said, look, sometimes markets overreact. They zoom down too much. Then they zoom back and overshoot. Right. And then they settle back down again. So up until we know which way we're going, my bet on cap rates is and nobody knows this is that you're not going to see a big change. And here's the other thing that, you know, cap rates are only reported after the sale. So even if deals do close now because, you know, they had gone firm and things like that, that cap rate was baked. What? How long ago, guys? Six months ago for a deal that closes tomorrow. Right. So let's say deal volume slows down, which it likely will. So now even when we get out of this, there's no deals that have been negotiated and closed. So there's going to be this vacuum of time to know what the cap rates actually have been. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So for that reason, if you're a permanent owner, is yes. the advice you're passing on to most of them is just sit and wait for two months and then evaluate the market? Um, you know, we've got a number of clients where we were about to go out to the marketplace. Okay. Several buildings. They were, one was a huge deal where we're talking about, you know, a couple hundred million dollars, right? And some were, and some were deals that were, I think the smallest one we had was like 9 million, 4 million, 20 million, like those, those size deals, right? So these people were, we were in the middle of signing a listing agreement or one, and in a couple of cases with the listing agreement signed. So, so we just said to the guys, look, we're not going to go out to the marketplace today or tomorrow. We're taking it day by day. But like, this is a good time for us to get everything ready because it takes a while. You know, by the time you get a proper package out, get the data room set, you know, and, and do, and we can't do building tours right now to do inspections, but it just takes a while. So if you're thinking of selling in the brokerage business, it's a contingency business. You're not paying the broker, you know, anything to go ahead and prepare these packages for you. So we said to them, let's go ahead and prepare the packages and we're going to, then we're going to wait and see. And at the right time, when it is time to come out, if you just don't know what's going to happen, you know, you could come out into a great market and boom, you're ready to go when people are saying, look, I've got dry powder and things like that. So I think that that's the advice we're giving our clients. Take it day by day. Now, there will be some people who may get into trouble because, and not because of their apartment, but they may get into trouble in another business, but their apartment business is where all their equity is now, right? And they may need to pull out some of that equity to solve another problem somewhere else. I think there'll be some lenders there. If the guy's got a $100 million worth of paid off apartments and all of a sudden he needs $20 million to take advantage of an opportunity somewhere else, I think, you know, there will be some secondary money, maybe to, maybe to higher interest rate to get him out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But if you're one of those vendors who's not required to sell immediately, for you, what will be what will be one of the early indicators? And maybe it's time to pull the trigger on getting your property. Well, you know, when I, I think when, when, I don't know, when your seminar topic changes, become more optimistic. Maybe that's one bellwether thing. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, it's really hard to say, guys, right? I would think it's a lot of this is, you know, sentiment, right? Like nobody has to buy an apartment building. And most times nobody has to sell one. Make sense? True. It is, it is an elective uh, investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just going to become clearer when it is the time to sell it. I mean, let's, okay, so why do people sell an apartment building? I think there's three reasons. Number one, it's death, 
right? principal dies and, you know, the family doesn't want to own it or there's several family members, a partnership problem or taking money off the table at the top of the market, right? Those are generally the reasons to sell because there's such a tax consequence, right? When you sell an apartment, you've got to pay so much tax that people defer it, right? So I think that I don't know if there's going to be an indicator. Like at any given time, I've forgotten the number now, how many apartments transact in Canada? Let's, I don't know, let's say in Ontario, it's, yeah, maybe in Ontario, it's maybe it's 500. Fair enough, a year. Okay, 500 deals over a million or, or, or 2 million bucks. But, but that's the quantum, right? I mean, that number could drop off, you know, dramatically because anyone who is, you know, electively selling, I think maybe that's the right word, you know, probably isn't going to in the next little while, right? So, yeah, I, th- I think deal flow will slow down. So, and that kind of brings us to maybe the, the last topic here is, okay, so deal flow goes down. What are you going to do, right? So, and I've thought long and hard about this, and I actually just posted a, a video to my LinkedIn on this where it was fairly personal. And I said, you know, some of you guys, I don't know if you're in this program called the Strategic Coach, a coach is a guy named Dan Sullivan, really smart guy, and I've been in the program for a long time. And he talked about, you know, scary times. And, you know, this probably qualifies as one of them. But one thing he challenged us to do, and I challenge you guys to do this, is go back in your life and look at the scary times you've been through, Okay. And I listed in my life six scary times I've been through, six things that at the time I went through them, they could be defined as maybe not as significant as this. And maybe I'll give you one business example. I'll give you one personal example. But when I went through those six things, then it says, what was the skill I learned during that scary time? And what was the new business or the new benefit that I had? Right. And when I look back on the hardest times in my life, those are actually the times for me to have the most growth. Okay. So. Then I said, okay, so this is going to be one of those scary times. Well, what is the growth that we're going to have in this and how am I going to come out the other side, right? So the scary times, the one I'll think of is, I don't know if you guys know, but I made it pretty public that, uh, you know, a number of years ago, uh, five, five, six years ago, I had a health event, right? At 57 years old, I was in the office doing a presentation to a client and I had a heart attack, like doing a pitch, guys. And by the way, yes, I finished the pitch, okay? And uh, <laughs> and got the listing. <laughs> so there. But but anyways, you know, so, and it was as fortunate that it wasn't like a major, it was a, a major, it was pretty significant. I mean, there's, you can't fool around about a heart attack, but you know, I got a stint put in, but I am, uh, you know, a svelte now relative to what I was before. Right. And so this made me smarten up and I now I lost, you know, a good bit of weight. I exercise every day and I bet you that I may be in better shape at 62 than I was at 42. That's a pretty big statement to make. Right. So I look back and go, yeah, that was not fun having that event happen. But look at the benefit I got from it. Right. I wouldn't want anyone to have that event happen and they should just smarten up anyways. Right. But so everything that happens to you is significant. I'll give you one more event that was a what I would say was a disaster in my life. I was a a rent review consultant, okay, back in, and I'm going to tell you the date of the disaster, okay? It was September 6th, 1990. Anybody remember what happened then? All right, pop quiz. No, time's 12. up, time's up, time's up. You're <laughs> so September 6th, 1990 was the day we elected the NDP as the government in Ontario. They immediately killed the rent control legislation bill. Fair enough. And it just ended. They suspended all rent review applications. Well, that's what I did. 100% of my business came from one piece of legislation. So I had all these landlord clients that I knew I had been to war with. We used to have public hearings. But all of we went into a session right after that. All of them became my clients and I got into the leasing business. And so... That was a disaster, but it led to an opportunity and led to an opportunity of me building a team of agents. We had 45 staff and we went all over Canada leasing apartments. Make sense? So I had these clients. We had a significant event occur, right? But we created a new skill from it. All those people that I leased up apartments for, I'm still friends with and I'm selling their buildings now, right? So 
the approach that we took, the philosophy here was we're going to go through this period of time, whatever it is. During that period of time, we're going to, we've got staff and we're going to write all our standard operating practices. We've been so busy last couple of years. I think we've created new positions, new skills. There aren't good job descriptions. We don't have written standard operating practices for some things that we do that have now become core. So we're going to take the time to make our company stronger, more bulletproof, and to cross-train our staff as much as we can. Fair enough. We've got different pieces of software that only certain people know how to use. Maybe this is the time to build in redundancy, especially, you know what? Someone gets hit with COVID. I mean, I should have two people in our accounting department, not one, because who's going to process the paychecks, right? So the philosophy is maybe we can just sort of end here and see if there's any question is we're going to go through this period, but we're going to come out of this period like a bat out of hell. You know what I mean? Like, you know, in the movies, you see a car driving through the fire and coming out the other end with the smoke trailing behind it, right? So what are we going to do during this period to have the best hundred days or best year or best month, right? When we come out of this, because we will come out of it and we're going to learn some great lessons. We're going to come out more resilient. The next time you come on the podcast, Derek, I'm going to ask you what you learned. This will all be in the rearview mirror at that point. It's a little stabilized. And uh, I'm going to ask you what your biggest... You know what? You know what? That would be a great, great, great question to learn. And I'll tell you, in this short time that we've been, you know, in this crazy kind of period, first thing I've learned is that people are different, right? I'm calling landlords at 10 o'clock at night, right? And I'm going, they're happy to hear from me. Do you see my point? Normally call a guy at 10 o'clock at night, he's in his jammies, you know, drinking his cocoa, right? Now all of a sudden I'm calling the guy and, and he's happy. Goes, Derek, what's going on? I'm glad you called, right? So you can have some really good, really, really good discussions. I think if it's, it's interesting too, when I'm talking to someone on the phone and let's say they have some piece of information I need, like the guy's sending it to me right now. Everybody wants to help. So the first thing I've learned, and we haven't been in too many, like we've led blessed lives in Canada here. Right. We really have. We've never been through, you know, horrible things that our parents and certainly our grandparents have been through, you know. And you know, can you imagine how things felt, you know, during World War Two? Right. Or how things felt in the, you know, in the ghetto in Poland or in Warsaw. Right. Or even how things felt during in 1962. Some of my friends are in their 70s. They talked about how things felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. Where it seemed like a nuclear war was about to happen. Right. You know, this is a flu. Right. I mean, apartments are recession proof. They're just not virus proof. Right. So we're all in a good business. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, things will be fine as long as we don't, you know, spend too much money solving, you know, this problem, which is still so undefined. I think that ending podcasts on a positive note is going to be more important during coronavirus than any other time. So I love that message as a takeaway for the conversation today, Derek. All right. right. Good. Now, maybe one more thing. You know, um, I think that you guys should consider reading Luke 12, 22 to 28. I'm not totally familiar with it. Can you refresh my memory? Luke 12, 22 to 28 is, and I'll paraphrase, it's the book of Luke. It's one of the gospels in the Bible. And I think it's Luke 12, 25 that says, who by worrying can add a single day to his life? And if you can't do that, why would you? You see my point? So yeah, who yeah, by worrying can add a single day to his life? Yeah, it's not going to change infection rates or cap rates or no, defaults. No, or how many bags of rice you have in your basement. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah. So look, we're going to get through this. We're a wealthy country, right? I mean, imagine other places in the world where people spend 50% of all the money they have in food and then there's food inflation, right? We spend what? 8% of our money on food. So food goes up by 50%. We're spending, you know, 12% of our money, right? Like we're in good shape. We're in good shape. We'll just get through this. Yeah. No, I, I like the positivity and I do agree. But Derek, we want to thank you for, uh, for coming on the podcast today. 
uh, and you know, sharing your knowledge, not just here, but the webinars as well. And again, we'll put that out for everybody to see. But thanks a lot for coming on. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast. And we want to thank our listeners for listening. If this content's relevant to you, you know, share it with people that should hear it. There's a lot of really good stuff in here today. And thanks again, Derek. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Derek. Really appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.